I'm Jamie Mo Crazy, and you're listening to Life Gets Mo Crazy, where we'll hear from people who either been through a trauma or helped someone else through. Listen and learn strategies you can implement in your life. So when a metaphorical avalanche slides you down the mountain of life, you can climb an alternative peak with the best view. Today, I'm interviewing Janet Gendelman, and let me tell you, her life got mo crazy when she was 41 years old when she was accidentally diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So, Janet, welcome to the show. Let's just get started with talking about ovarian cancer. You were accidentally diagnosed. Let's let's talk about that. So I was um, on a vacation with my family. It was February of 2019. Um, and it was at the tail end of our one week getaway to um, Colorado, where we go skiing every single year with our kids. It's a tradition in our family that we ski out West. Um, we are big time skiers. We love skiing. I taught my kids how to ski, you know, pretty much right after I you know, they started walking. So we were out West on our ski trip and um, it was February 20th. And out of nowhere, I developed this really intense abdominal pain, really, truly out of nowhere. And it was pretty awful. Um, And it was awful enough that that evening I could not sleep. And I took myself to the emergency room. So it was the middle of the night of February 20th took myself to the emergency room in Vail, Colorado. That's where we were. We were on a ski trip in Vail. And I got to the emergency room. Um, I told them I had this terrible pain. They did an ultrasound. They did a scan. And they told me that I had a cyst on my ovary. And the cyst was causing my ovary to twist. So my ovary was twisting. This is what was causing the pain. The pain started to subside. You know, the doctor told me it wasn't anything emergent and that, you know, as soon as we got back to Michigan, um, that I should follow up with my gynecologist in Detroit. So I said, great. I went back to the hotel room to rest. Um, I actually ended up calling my doctor in Detroit, letting her know what happened. And she asked me how I was feeling. I told her I was feeling much better. And I asked her if I could go skiing. And she said, well, yeah, if you feel better, go skiing, because it was the last day of our our ski trip and I really wanted to spend some more time on the mountain. So I went back out skiing that last day um, and I felt really good. And then in the evening, the same thing happened. I got that terrible pain again. Um, It was really awful. And I went back to the ER. And when I went back to the ER, the doctor said, well, now you're back here for the second day in a row with the same exact issue, with the same pain. They did another ultrasound. They told me my ovary was, you know, still twisted. um, And that at this point, they felt that they needed to bring in the doctor who was on call, the the gynecologist on call, the specialist. Um, So they wouldn't let me go back to my hotel room. They made me stay at the hospital. I had to call my husband who came to the hospital. We had to get our friends, thank goodness, to go to our hotel room and be with our kids. Um, the gynecologist on call came in and he, you know, explained to me what was happening, that the ovary twisting um, 
was starting to become dangerous because, you know, it continued to twist and the cyst continued to, you know, be putting this pressure on my ovary um, and that I needed to have the ovary removed because if the ovary continued to twist, you know, it would lose blood flow. I could become septic. And so he said, okay, well, you need to have this surgery. If I thought there was anything strange here, you know, I would put you in an ambulance and send you to Denver, but this is a really pretty, you know, um, routine surgery that we do here. And we stayed and I had the surgery done. It was done early Friday morning on February 21st. It went extremely well. The doctor came out, told my husband that it was, you know, pretty much a textbook surgery with no issues, no complications. He removed my ovary, he removed my uh, fallopian tube, and he also actually removed the fallopian tube on the other side. He brought out actually a bunch of pictures from the laparoscopic surgery and, you know, showed us that everything was fine, everything looked normal. And, you know, as soon as I felt better that he would, you know, come in to round and check on me, and then another doctor would round on me in the morning, and, you know, I would, I was basically free to go. Um, and so that's exactly what we did. You know, I spent that night in the hospital. The following morning on Saturday, my husband and I, um, we left Vail, Colorado. We left the hospital and we went to Denver because that's where our, our flight back to Detroit was from. We spent an evening in Denver and then Sunday morning, you know, we boarded a plane, went back to Detroit when um, we were home on Sunday and I was recovering and feeling really good. Um, I had to stay home from work because, you know, I did have the surgery. I wasn't allowed to drive. And then my phone rang on February 27th. Um, and I saw that the phone number was from Colorado and I saw that it was from Vail Health. And I thought, oh my God, this is so wonderful. <laughs> you know, this doctor is calling to check up on me. He probably just wants to see how I'm doing. And I answered the phone and it was the doctor um, who did my surgery and he said, you know, Janet, um, I'm so sorry to be calling you with this news, he said, but unfortunately, the pathology on your ovary revealed ovarian cancer. And I screamed, um, you know, I'm 41 years old, I'm so healthy, I'm active, I eat really well. Like, how could I possibly have cancer? There were no symptoms. There was no indication. Um, you know, there was nothing. And, you know, from there, it kind of turned into this um, whirlwind of, you know, doctor's appointments um, that I would have to make an appointment with an oncologist that, you know, the ovary would have to travel from Colorado to Detroit because they would want to do a pathology on it again. Um, and the one thing that she said to me is, um, you know, before we got off the phone, she said, here's what I want you to do tonight. She said, you need to go and be with your kids. You need to go and be with your family. And she said, and please do not get on the internet. She said, you know, everything you are going to find on the internet is going to be something that happened to somebody else, and none of those people are you, and you don't need that information. Don't, you know, pollute your mind with other people's stories. 
your story is uniquely your own. When people encounter a trauma, the first thing, if they go and they look it up and they search it and they start playing the what if game. So the what if in the future, like what if this happens? What if that happens? It's so overwhelming and scary. Um, I still have yet to Google my diagnosis. I know it seems crazy, um, but I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I really could not bring myself um, to, to Google the, this type of ovarian cancer, you know, that I was told that I had. Um, the internet is a scary place and can create turmoil. So from there, it was kind of a rat race to find the right doctors, um, you know, figure out what the treatment plan was going to be. And truly in, in the back of my head, I thought, okay, well, I had a surgery, so I'm probably just going to have to have another surgery. They'll want to do a full hysterectomy, which is fine because, you know, I'm, I'm done having kids. I have two healthy children. I don't need these body parts anymore. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's it. And then I will be able to, to move on. So um, that wasn't the case. My husband and I started to meet with um, oncologists and we met with actually four different oncologists and all of them told me the same thing that not only would I need this follow-up surgery, but I would need six rounds of chemotherapy. You have this picture in your head of what chemotherapy is or what people who get chemotherapy look like you know, and I was so healthy, there was literally nothing wrong with me. And I felt really good. Um, I didn't feel sick. And I thought, Oh, God, if I have to go through chemotherapy, I'm probably going to look sick. And I kind of thought I had to put my life on hold, you know, to go through this cancer treatment. But I really didn't have to do that. You know, I was, I, I really kind of was, and it was tough. But you know, I just shifted my mindset to this. What if I'm, going to be okay. I mean, there's really this possibility that I'm just going to be fine. And, you know, I, I totally shifted, you know, the way that I thought and I approached this diagnosis in a different way in terms of, um, you know, what I was going to do to make sure that I was going to be okay. So in addition to seeing, you know, the two oncologists and going through the treatment, um, I really committed myself to also seeing an Eastern medicine doctor um, and, you know, using him in order to kind of calm my mind and my body. But I went, you know, for acupuncture and cupping and all of these other things that I think were so important for my mindset. Um, my husband and I, we learned how to meditate together, um, which was huge. It was such a powerful thing to be able to do. Um, especially during my chemotherapy. Um, I spent a lot of those hours in that chemo chair meditating. You know, I would just kind of close my eyes and meditate because it was, you know, being in that infusion center um, is a very, very difficult place um, to be. And then on top of that, the other layer to this was, is that going through chemotherapy, you know, my doctors did share with me that the, the two drugs, the drug regimen that I would have to be on um, would cause me to lose my hair. And I thought, oh my God, if I lose my hair, I'm going to look like I'm sick. Like that's going to be really hard, you know, 
to stomach as well. Like I'm going to look like I'm sick. And then what if I start feeling like I'm sick? When you go through cancer treatment and you lose your hair, you have to kind of talk about your cancer all the time, right? Like it's a very visible thing um, when people lose their hair. So my one of my doctors, one of my oncologists said to me, you know, you actually don't have to lose your hair. And I said, what do you mean I don't have to lose my hair? Like I've seen, you know, cancer patients before, you know, most of them lose their hair. And he said, well, there's this, you know, there's, there's this treatment called cold capping. Um, and there's a possibility that you could save your hair. You mentioned about with the ability to keep your hair, you didn't have to talk about it all the time. And so you weren't defined by your trauma. And that's something that happens to a lot of people. They've had this big event, this big situation, and they're defined by the trauma. Something else I wanted to touch on was how you said that you went above and beyond what you were diagnosed and told to do by the medical field. So you combine Eastern and Western medicine, and you think that helped a lot. I I think it helped with, um, well, it helped me, I think, mentally a lot. Just, you know, the acupuncture was very um, calming for me, the acupuncture, the cupping, and just seeing this Eastern medicine doctor who, you know, was very calming, um, was very um, in tune with my whole body, right. Making sure that, you know, all of me was okay. Right. Not just my abdomen where, you know, I had this, this trauma. Um, yeah, I think for me, it was, that was another big game changer. I think seeing this Eastern medicine doctor and, you know, my Western med, right. My two oncologists were also very open to that and very, um, you know, accepting of the fact that I was, you know, combining the Eastern with, with the Western. Yeah, I have one older sister who is actually a doctor, and she okay. became my primary care physician when I was in the coma. So she would make the rounds with the other doctors, and her input was taken seriously. Um, and then I have another older sister who is a massage therapist, Reiki practitioner, um, Eastern medicine kind of stuff. And starting when I was in the coma and I was on the food tube, they would start putting fish oil omega-3s into the food tube so that they would go into my brain because, um, and they asked the doctor and the doctor said, yeah, that's fine. Um, but they don't, pres they don't do that to anyone else because to, well, fish oil costs money. And so they're not going to do it to the patient. But if you provide it, um, and, and you, you pay for it, then you can have those types of treatments um, in the feeding tube. And they continued after I left the hospital. I, I did so much Eastern Western medicine. Actually, my mom had me when I left the hospital, the right side of my body was still recovering from paralysis. And I would do yoga, not an hour long yoga. <laughs> I would do five minutes of yoga. And just being able to hold poses, some really basic yoga poses. And then I would do five minutes of Shavasana, which is where you lie down and you close your eyes. My mom believed 
that me learning how to calm my brain down was just as important as me learning how to stimulate it and get it to work again. I also needed to calm it down. Yeah, and, and you mentioned how important meditating was. Yeah, I think just kind of, you know, there was so much noise in my head um, in terms of, you know, obviously I still had these thoughts, right? Like, am I going to die? Like, what if the chemo doesn't work? What if I have a reaction to the chemo? What if I get really sick and I have to be hospitalized? You know, you see all of these things, right? Like I said to you, you know, being in a chemotherapy infusion center, you see a lot of things that are are really rough um, to stomach. So I felt like I needed to calm those thoughts, right? How do I, you know, kind of silence them because they're always running through my head. Um, and a friend of mine actually recommended meditation. She had recently learned how to meditate. And um, yeah, so, you know, my husband, you know, Vlad, so Vlad and I actually um, together learned how to meditate. We learned transcendental, transcendental meditation. We took a class together. We learned how to meditate. Um, for me, it's been really awesome. I, I continue to meditate, not as much as I should, but it's definitely something I still am able to go back to. And I'm so grateful that I you know, was able to learn how to do it. Yeah, that meditation was huge for me as well in my recovery process. Um, we started meditating when I was in the hospital. And then for like the year after I was back from the hospital, I had huge emotional triggers and just giant mood swings. And to be able to lie down and calm myself, uh, I would be like sobbing and crying and like super angry. And I would just lie down and then I it would start to like settle, settle down a little bit. And um, so I'm a big fan of meditation. And I still meditate as well. And like you, I'm sometimes like, I should do it a little bit more. But I try when I feel like butterflies in my stomach or I have like so much to do. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to take like 10 minutes out of my day and meditate because I feel like I'm super busy. But then once I meditate, all of a sudden, everything seems so much easier. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And like you said, um, just that you know, sometimes I would feel that anger too. Like I was never angry for myself. Um, I was angry for my family. You know, I was really angry that this happened to my parents. Cause I think I can't even imagine, you know, what it's like to watch your child go through cancer. Um, and I was angry for my husband and for my kids, you know, like, why was this happening to them? right? Because it's not just about me, it was happening to them too, right? And I, you know, I said to, to Vlad at one point, I was like, you know what? I, like, I've had a really awesome life, right? Like, I know I'm only 41 years old, but, you know, I went to high school, I had a great ex childhood, I went to college, I had an awesome experience there, like, I've been on so many beautiful vacations, I've seen so many places around the world, like, I'm happy. Like my, I've had a great life. You know, if it, if this is it, it is what it is. Right. But I'm so angry. I was so angry for them. Right. Like it wasn't okay for, you know, for my husband. Right. It wasn't okay for my kids. And Vlad's like, well, what if, 
you know, what are you so angry about? Like nothing, you know, you're going to be fine. Like, what if you stop being angry and just realize that you're just going to be okay? You know, so it was like those, those conversations. That's a really good point that you brought up though, is that a trauma never happens to the sole individual who is experiencing the trauma. So I'm the one whose brain was bleeding in eight spots. I'm the one in the coma and the person it affected the most was like you mentioned, my mom. When she found out about it, she collapsed on the beach just screaming. And she will always have those memories of that. And it also affected my sister a lot as well. My sister, Jeannie, who was competing. It was her first World Tour Finals that she made it to. And she was supposed to compete in half pipe the next day. So she was just watching me in the slope style. Um, and she was the one who heard the radio crackle to life and say, we need all hands on deck and a helicopter on standby. And she skied over the mountain and saw me convulsing, spewing blood with my eyes rolled back. And quite often, they don't get as much attention and credit for it. Um, and they did so much, which is why we built Mo Crazy Strong, because I had so much support. I had Eastern and Western medicine sisters. My mom um, has a master's in psychology and early childhood development. She actually wrote an article about brain injury a week before my brain injury, <laughs> because there's so many individuals who encounter trauma and they, they don't have that much education backing them. Um, but like you mentioned, it never happens to one person. So it's a family event. And that's why there's caregivers and there's family members. And all of them need just as much help as the individual who encountered the trauma. I'd love to hear more about cold cap. I used these cold caps, which basically what they do is, you know, the, the chemo medication, right, it's intravenous and it attacks all of your cells, the good ones and the bad ones, right? So what happens when you use the cold caps and the cold cap is just that, it's a cap, it's not medication, it is a freezing, it almost looks like a helmet and you basically put it on your head and you tightly secure it, um, you know, to your head and it is kept at minus 40 degrees. So what it does is it freezes your hair follicles. And because your hair follicles are frozen, the chemo medication is not able to reach those hair follicles, right? So if you can't get to the hair follicles because they're frozen, it can't kill those cells, which in turn, you know, causes your hair not to fall out. Um, there's no medication involved. It's literally just the freezing of the scalp. And I was able to um, keep my hair. I mean, you know, there were a couple patches where you, I knew that I had lost hair. It's not a perfect uh, formula, but for people, you know, who didn't know that I was going through cancer treatment or for people who, you know, saw me at work um, and I continue to work, I'm a high school teacher um, my doctors actually told me to work. You know, they said, you should go to work. You should keep working. You need to maintain as much normal in your life as you can. Um, that's not to say that I was always able to work. But, you know, when I felt really good, I, I went to work. Um, 
but you know, the fact that I kept my hair was a complete game changer because my kids weren't scared. I didn't have to talk about cancer all the time. I got to choose when I, you know, could talk about cancer. Um, and once my, my chemotherapy was done, once I was out of the treatment, you know, I, I pretty much went back to my normal life, you know, because I didn't have this, this visual, you know, this, this side effect from the chemo of having, you know, lost all my hair, right? Because you walk away from chemo and, you know, it takes months and months, years, you know, for you to grow your hair back, you know, going through the cancer and using the caps, um, insurance, health insurance does not cover cold capping. Um, you know, when I contacted my insurance company, they said, we will gladly buy you actually not one, but two wigs, but we will not pay for the cold capping. It's not FDA approved. Um, you know, it's very experimental. It's not a hundred percent effective. So, um, you know, I was really fortunate that we were able to afford it on our own. It's, it's very expensive. Um, and, you know, sitting there in the chemo room in the infusion center and being able to use the caps and being able to save my hair, you know, I thought, oh my God, like, how come I didn't know about this, right? Like nobody really knows about the cold capping when it makes such an impact, right? The fact that, you know, I, I was able to save my hair and I didn't always have to talk about cancer or look, you know, like a cancer patient. Um, and I said to my husband and the woman who was, there was a woman that we hired to help me with the cold caps. Um, I said, if I walk away from this and I can just help one other person um, be able to use cold caps, I will feel like, you know, I, I've given back, like I've done something, you know, good in this world. Fast forward to, um, you know, what was it? April of 2020. So pretty much right after COVID started, um, I became connected with a group of incredible women. So I had been doing my own research, um, trying to figure out how to raise money appropriately um, to help other people be able to use cold caps and just to bring awareness to it. And I was connected with this incredible group of women. Um, and there are six of us in total, and we are the founders of a brand new nonprofit, and it is called Cap and Conquer. Um, and our goal, our, our mission is to raise awareness um, and educate people on cold caps and raise money to provide financial assistance to people who want to use cold caps but are not able to um, to afford afford cold caps. And of this group of six women, um, I am 43 years old now, and I am the oldest um, woman in the group. It's pretty intense. <laughs> but you know what? You said you just launched it at the beginning of COVID. There are those companies and individuals whose products will thrive after COVID. And so thank you so much for being on the show.